Well, we're gonna we're just gonna jump right in, okay? Uh, and we won't mess around with introductions. Uh, uh, you can make your way to Matthew chapter twenty six. Uh, Matthew 26, today we'll be covering the first 16 verses of, chapter, of the chapter uh, in a message, message I've entitled, Worship or Waste. And so uh, we've got a, a lot to, to talk about, a lot to look at uh, this morning. So uh, will you please stand as we read this morning's portion of, scripture, portion of Scripture. Again, we'll be reading Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. Verse 1 begins, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Verse 6, And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we go through your word this morning. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would come with an open heart, an open mind, uh, open ears to hear all that you want to say to us this morning. Lord, we pray for your blessings to be upon the kids as they meet and gather and have their own study uh, on their own level. Lord, we pray you'd bless them. Lord, we also pray for the other churches and chapels that are meeting this morning. We pray your blessings would be upon them as well. Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that our time here this morning is honoring of him and his name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. In our opening two verses, Jesus had, had finished all his sayings regarding the disciples' questions about the signs of his coming and the end of the age. He had finished what we commonly refer to as his Olivet Discourse from Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. In fact, for us, uh, in the book of Matthew, as we continue to make our way through, uh, this concludes all of the major teachings of Jesus Christ. From here on in our study of the book of Matthew, uh, we will see less focus upon instruction and more emphasis placed upon Jesus fulfilling His mission to the cross. Adam Clark wrote in his commentary, Having instructed his disciples and the Jews by his discourses, edified them by his example, convinced them by his miracles, he now prepares to redeem them by his blood. 
And so that's what we're going to be moving into uh, these next couple chapters as we close out the book of Matthew. Jesus gives to us a time marker here as well in these first few verses. Uh, He said to his disciples that after two more days would be the Passover. Okay, Uh, the the Passover was a feast day that was celebrated in commemoration of God's final plague against Egypt and the resulting freedom that they received. If you guys are unfamiliar with the account, the details of such are in Exodus chapter 12. And in Exodus chapter 12, the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron. And He gives to them the details of how they were to establish and keep this feast. This feast was to be celebrated on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan at twilight. They were to take a lamb that had been selected four days prior on the 10th of Nisan. And they were to sacrifice that lamb at the start, at the beginning, at twilight of the 14th day. After killing the lamb, they were to take some of the blood and they were to put it on the two doorposts and the, uh, what they called the lintel of the houses uh, where they ate. For on that night, the Lord would pass through the land of Egypt and He would strike down all the firstborn, executing judgment upon them. But the blood would be seen as a sign to the Lord, so that when He saw the blood upon the doorpost and the lintel of the house, that He would pass over that house, and the plague would not enter into that house. And that's where they get the the title of the feast, the Passover. Because the Lord passed over those houses that were marked with the blood of the Lamb upon the doorpost and upon the lintel. That night at midnight, the Lord did pass through the land and He destroyed all the firstborn, including Pharaoh's firstborn. And it was this tenth and final plague that finally made Pharaoh release the Israelites from their bondage and slavery to him and into the, from the land of Egypt. Because the Israelites had to leave in such haste, they left without being able to properly prepare the dough for their bread, okay? And they were forced to bake and eat unleavened bread. Basically, unleavened bread is bread without yeast in it, okay? Most of you guys probably are familiar with that. Bread without yeast. It would be flat, like tortillas or something, but tortillas, that's just flour and lard, I think. So, yeah, that's like unleavened bread. (laughs) Because uh, they had to leave, uh, from this came a second feast tradition, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And according to Exodus chapter 12, this feast was to begin the day after the Passover commemoration on the 15th of Nisan and should be kept for seven days until the 21st day of the month of Nisan. Okay? Together, these two feasts were, uh, would encompass an eight-day uh, commemoration of God's deliverance of the Israelites from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And although the Passover was just one day long, that was followed by this seven-day festival, a feast of unleavened bread, sometimes the eight-day commemoration was simply referred to as the feast of the Passover, and vice versa. Sometimes they would talk about this eight-day commemoration as the feast of unleavened bread. Okay? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why is, all this, why is this important? Okay? Uh, Not so much for our study today, but next week it's going to be important. So what I want you to do is to take this information and put it in your back pocket. We'll pull it out next week and we'll look at it again uh, a little bit briefer because I've already given you a heads up. This information is important, okay? Uh, and so it's important as we're going to continue our way throughout the, the study of the book of Matthew as far as setting a timeline. Because there's some confusion in regards to the timeline of the last week of uh, Jesus' life. And some people aren't so sure. Was it, you know, was it on the Passover he would died? Was this, that? We'll get into that as we come to those times. And so uh, we need to, I want to make that aware to you. Okay? As for the time marker in our study, because Jesus said it was two days prior to the Passover, and we know that the Passover was to begin on the 14th, we can safely assume that the date must be the 12th of Nisan at this time. Okay? 
As we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, we've been counting the day's events, starting from the triumphal entry that took place late on Sunday afternoon, according to Mark chapter 11, verse 11, uh, when he had entered into, after the triumphal entry, he'd entered into the temple, he took a look, but then it was, too, it was late in the day, and so he turned around and went back to Bethany. That was Sunday, okay? On the next day, Monday, he returned to the city to cleanse the temple, and then he again returned in the evening back to Bethany. On Tuesday, he and the disciples again entered into the city of Jerusalem, and, and they went to the temple. And this time they were confronted by the religious leaders with all sorts of questions. And, and these questions were designed to, to trap Jesus. And it's interesting because as we went through that and we studied that, we saw Jesus kind of just put them all in their place and, and they dared not speak to him again because they were fearful that he was going to uh, you know, make them look silly, basically. And so uh, after putting those guys in their place, Jesus departed the temple on Tuesday afternoon. And as they did so, the disciples, as they were exiting, they made mention, if you guys recall, about the buildings within the temple. Like, well, look at these buildings in the temple and, and the, the stones. They're so magnificent. And it was then that Jesus prophesied, Not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. That was in Matthew chapter 24. And as they exited the city of Jerusalem, they headed yet again toward Bethany, which was situated on the side of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus stopped and He gave to them the Olivet Discourse, which we have been studying through these last two chapters, 24 and 25. Here we are, we're at the conclusion of his teaching still on Tuesday, which we now know is the 12th of Nisan. Okay, and Jesus said that after two days on the Passover, he would be delivered up to be crucified. So for those of you who are still tracking with me, which I hope is most of you, you may be wondering, if Jesus is crucified on the Passover which we believe he was. Okay? He is referred to as our Passover sacrifice, uh, sacrificed for us in 1 Corinthians 5.7. Two days from Tuesday would be Thursday. Okay? Yet we say he was crucified on Friday. Okay? Uh, and, and I want to be able to tell you, this isn't something that we need to get really scared about, like, oh, there's an error. Okay? This is easily explained. Okay? It must have been Tuesday evening when Jesus made this statement. You have to recall that the Jews do not start their days at midnight like we do. Okay? At 12 o'clock a.m., we say that's the beginning of the next day. They start their days at sundown. Okay? When the sun goes down, that's the start of the new day. And so, uh, with that, uh, knowing that, if this was Tuesday evening, then it would be the very beginning of the 12th of Nisan, which would last until sundown of Wednesday. Does that make sense? Sun goes down, it's the 12th of Nisan. For us, it's still Tuesday. We still say that's Tuesday night, right? At midnight, we say it's Wednesday. For them, it was Wednesday when the sun went down. And so uh, two days from Wednesday is Friday. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. I see some people doing this, and I see the other people going like this. So, um, If it doesn't make sense to you, come talk to me. I'll try and it's easy to see it if you kind of lay it out, map it out. Okay? This had to be Tuesday evening when he said that. If it's two days from now, and we know he was uh, crucified on the Passover on uh, the 14th of Nisan, it's the 12th of Nisan, has to be Tuesday night, the very, very beginning of the 12th of Nisan, when the sun went down, okay? All right. All that just to determine that it's Tuesday night, okay? And <laughs> some of you may be bored with the kind of stuff, but I love being able to just dig into the scripture and figure out things like that. You know, the Word of God is so rich, uh, and, and uh, it gives us everything we know, need to, to know and understand it. Uh, and sometimes it just takes a little bit of work in understanding how things work. Uh, sometimes we think, oh, that's... That's a contradiction, or how does that work, you know, in the timeline? I dive in a little bit, and we figure it out, okay? All right. It's interesting to me that Jesus, yet again, he proclaims his death to the disciples after he finished speaking about his coming there at the end of verse 2. 
Keep in mind that he just finished talking about how he was going to come in glory with all of his angels. And he was going to sit upon a throne of glory. Okay? And this was the kind of thing that the disciples liked to hear. Okay? This talk about the kingdom and thrones and him reigning, that's what they wanted to hear. Okay? They repeatedly, uh, we read of the disciples arguing about who was going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. How um, some actually even tried to bring Mama into the situation and have Mama help jockey for position, right? These, my two boys, let them be on your right and left when you enter into your kingdom. Okay? They repeatedly asked Jesus about his, coming, his kingdom and when He was going to set it up. I believe at the very heart of their questioning at the beginning of chapter 24 was them trying to figure out when his earthly kingdom would be set up. When they said, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? They weren't talking about like the end of the world. They were talking about the end of the age that they're in now. Rome leading over top of them, ruling over them. When's that going to end? I believe is what their questioning was. They weren't thinking about, you know, a couple thousand years from now in, in his uh, return, they were thinking about this earthly kingdom. They mistakenly assumed, like many others, that Jesus, as their Messiah, was going to set up an earthly kingdom at this time. And they hoped he would set them free from the oppression of Rome and allow themselves to build their own kingdom. And I imagine they had visions of grandeur. Okay? of the glory days when David and Solomon reigned as kings over Israel. Can you imagine being the right-hand man of David and Solomon and, and the great wealth and power and uh, just everything that would be given to you? That, I believe, was in their mind. Jesus reeled them back in a little here just to make sure they understood that in just a few short days, He would be handed over and he would be crucified. His mission was not to set up an earthly kingdom. His mission was to die upon the cross for our sins, to establish the foundation of a spiritual kingdom that would last for all eternity. Let's look back in here, verse 3 through 5. Verses 3 through 5, Matthew 26, it says. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas. And they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. While Jesus was with his disciples in Bethany, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people, they were plotting against him. And we're told that they gathered together at the palace of the high priest, who we're told was named Caiaphas. Okay. Now this is the first mention of this man named Caiaphas in the Gospel of Matthew. Caiaphas was the high priest, then he was put in charge by the Romans. Uh, history says that it was around the year 18 AD that he was put in place as the high priest. Caiaphas was a member of the group of Sadducees. Okay? And if you remember anything about the Sadducees, you remember that they were a very liberal group that was more concerned with keeping control of their power within the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling government at that time for, for the Jews that Rome allowed them to rule at least with. Okay? And they were more concerned with keeping power and, and keeping their wealth within their family. They were very wealthy, prominent individuals, and they were, could care less about living holy lives that honored the Lord and His Word. Okay? Interestingly enough, there were actually two people that were recognized as high priests during this day. According to Luke's Gospel, both Caiaphas and another man by the name of Annas were recognized as high priest. Luke chapter 3, verse 2 tells us that. Under normal circumstances, there's only supposed to be one high priest. Okay? Uh, by Mosaic law, the high priesthood was originally supposed to be held for life, and it was hereditary. It was to, to pass through the line of Aaron. And, and so if you were, you, you kind of had to be born into it, inherit this opportunity to be the high priest. Okay? But 
by the New Testament days and under Roman rule, the Romans would actually appoint whomever they desired to be the high priest. And so uh, the term was no longer for life, nor was there a requirement that it be passed down through a particular family. According to some sources, the Romans would often allow the, highest, the high priest position to go to the highest bidder uh, that was willing to keep close ties to Rome and to Caesar. And so it's a very political position, uh, but it was set up within the religious system. Okay? Annas was high priest before Caiaphas. Annas was the high priest from the year 7 AD through about 14 AD. Uh, History says that in 14 AD, he was removed from his position by the Romans. Caiaphas, who actually married Annas' daughter, was later given the position by Rome. And so uh, this is uh, not the first time that uh, this group of individuals has gathered together to plot against Jesus either. Okay? Earlier, after Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, a word got out to the chief priest and elders, and a council was formed uh, to decide what they would do with Jesus. Okay? Uh, many people were excited about what happened when Lazarus, if you guys are familiar with the account, uh, was dead in the tomb, and he called them forth, and they unwrapped him, and people were excited. Some people went and told the chief priests and, and, the, and the elders and the scribes, hey, this has happened. And so they gathered this council together. They feared that if he continued unchecked, that Jesus, uh, that the people would follow after Jesus and that the Romans would come and take away their place and their nation. So these people were kind of seen as the Romans people that kind of keep the Jews under control. And if they can't keep them under control anymore, they're going to lose their power, lose their position. And so it was a great threat to them. And it was Caiaphas who spoke up at that time during that council meeting. And then he declared, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. perish. John eleven forty nine through 50, unbeknownst to him, he was speaking prophetically. He was just thinking, hey, let's save ourselves and just kill this guy and get rid of him and he won't cause us any problems. John tells us later that from that day on, they plotted to put him to death in John 11, verse 53. And so this plotting and scheming, it has been going on for some time. And the difficult thing that they had to work around was the people. They didn't want to cause an uproar among the people. You see, the people liked Jesus. And so they had to come up with a way that they could get Jesus without inciting a riot of sorts among the people. Another thing they were concerned about was that they didn't want it to happen during the feast. Okay? And this is important because the reason being was that the crowds would be so very large during this time. People traveling to celebrate these feasts, would fill Jerusalem. Jerusalem's population would balloon up. Some estimate, you know, up into the, a couple million people filling in, filing in to Jerusalem. And so uh, this great big crowd, uh, this feast, and any sort of unrest among the people would not be looked upon kindly by the Romans. Okay? If you can't keep this big thing under control, then we have problems. And the fact that this gathering of people was connected to the religious beliefs and traditions of the people, any type of problems would be attached to the religious leaders. And they didn't want that sort of attention from Rome. And so they desperately didn't want any of this to happen during the feast. We know, we already know what's going to happen. It's going to happen during the feast. But they didn't want that to happen. Okay? So they had to figure out a way that they could seize Jesus without causing a big scene, And then they had to do something to mar the image of Jesus within the eyes of the people so that they would be consenting to his death. The people liked him, and so they needed to do something to turn them against him. And they needed to do something where they could seize him. And it would seem, based upon reading verses 3 through 5, that they were at a loss. 
that they had been plotting and planning for some time and they have yet to come up with anything. They don't have a plan. Okay? We might think, oh yeah, they had a plan, it all worked out, but it's not going to work out until we read the last verses of our portion of Scripture today. So keep that in mind. Okay. Let's read verses 6 through 13. It says, And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Excuse me. Jesus and his disciples uh, have now reached Bethany, and they have entered into the house of a man known as Simon the leper. Okay? And I believe that it is safe to assume that Jesus uh, probably, I, I think it's safe to assume, he healed this man of his leprosy. Otherwise, he would have lived uh, in a leper colony outside of the city limits. Lepers weren't allowed to live within inside the city uh, limits. And so uh, the idea is that he is a, a, was previously a leper. Okay? Also, if he was a leper, he would not be allowed to entertain and host people within his house. That's a big no-no. You can't do that. And so the idea is this man was just commonly referred to or known as Simon the leper, uh, and he had been healed, but that's just kind of who he was, right? That just kind of identified with that, even though he wasn't a leper anymore. While at Simon's house... An unnamed woman comes and anoints Jesus's feet. Or excuse me, Jesus with a very costly, fragrant oil, and the disciples were were upset by this woman's gesture and claimed it was wasteful and that it could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus corrected the disciples' ill feelings, though, and he claiming it was done for his burial and that it was a good thing. Now there is some debate as to when this event actually took place. Mark records for us in chapter 14 of his gospel a parallel account to what we read here in Matthew chapter 26, both of which are extremely similar, almost word for word. You can kind of go down and read Matthew and Mark's account. However, John also records for us a similar event as described before us here in his gospel in the 12th chapter of the book of John. Okay? And, and based upon the simple reading of this text in Matthew, it would seem that this event took place on Tuesday evening, two days before the Passover. However, John's gospel record of a similar account says, says that it happened six days before the Passover. John chapter 12, verse 1 reads, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead. And and he goes on and his account goes on to describe Lazarus' sister, Mary. You guys remember it's Lazarus and uh, his two sisters, Mary and Martha. John's gospel describes for us and tells us that it was Mary as the one anointing Jesus with a costly oil. Now, some suggest that these accounts are speaking of the same event and that Matthew and Mark are simply sharing some sort of flashback memory of something that happened earlier in Bethany prior to the triumphal entry. John chapter 12's event six days before the Passover was before the triumphal entry. Okay? Um, They connect this unnamed woman that we read of in Matthew 26 with Mary. They say, oh, it's the same person. It's the same event. I, however, believe that these are two separate events. An anointing that happened six days before the Passover and another anointing that was four days later, which was two days before the Passover. Okay? As you look at them in parallel, and there's a lot of similarities, but to me as you read them, there's enough differences that could suggest that this could definitely be two separate occasions. 
whether or not it was the same event or, or two separate events, it really doesn't change the application of what we're going to learn about uh, from this woman's act of worship, whether it's an unnamed woman or whether it is Mary. And so we're going to look here and we're going to try to glean from her act of worship. And as we consider this woman's act of wor- worship, I, I want to focus in on certain observations and aspects of the details to draw out for us applications regarding the subject matter of worship. Okay? And so I, I actually have eight different things. They're not listed in any particular order of one greater than the other, but just observations as we look at the text that we can glean regarding the subject matter of worship. The first thing that I notice here is that this woman who had a heart to worship, she was led by that desire into the presence of Jesus. Verse 6 tells us that the woman came to him. She wasn't just passing through and happened to stumble upon Jesus. She purposed in her heart to come to him, to enter into his presence. And really, as we think about worship, isn't that what worship is about? About coming into the presence of the Lord and spending time with Him? How often do we allow ourselves opportunities to enter into His presence in worship? I love gathering together with you guys on Sunday and singing unto the Lord and and doing this, but I hope that you have more opportunities than just once a week to gather in His presence, to to worship Him. Before each Sunday morning, I I often pray that as we worship, that we would find ourselves in the midst of the throne room of God and that His presence would be sensed among us. I often pray that, Lord, I want Your presence to be sensed in this place. I want people to know that they've come and spent time with You. Does our worship of God lead us into His presence like this woman was led to the presence of Jesus? I would encourage you to consider your time of worship. Does it lead you into the presence of God? Does it allow you to spend time with Him? It should. The second thing that I notice about this woman's worship is that it was costly. Okay. Verse 6 says that she brought with her an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. When this woman came to worship, she offered up something that was very costly to her. Something that had great value. You know, I'm reminded of the account in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 when David came to the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And if you're familiar with that account, you know that David had counted the people. He had done a, 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 a bad thing. Okay? He should not have done that. He, and it was displeasing uh, to the Lord. And actually the Lord gave David an option between three different punishments. And he, he asked for the Lord's hand to be upon him for three days. And there was this plague that came upon the land. And the prophet Gad came to David and he told him that he must erect an altar on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David went to Ornan's threshing floor. And Ornan came out to meet David. And he bowed before him with his face to the ground. And David then asked to purchase the threshing floor so that he could erect an altar to the Lord and withdraw the plague from the people. And it's interesting because in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 23, Ornan replies to King David. And this is what he says. He says, Take it to yourself. And let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. Ornan's response to David was like, You can have it all for free. Hey, I'll give you the land. I'll provide the meat for the sacrifice. You can chop up my uh, threshing instruments for wood. Use that for the sacrifice. Hey, I've got some grain here. You can throw that on for the grain offering. All for free. Just take it. It's all yours. And one might think, hey, that's a pretty good deal. All right. It's all provided for me. I just got to show up and do my deed and done. That wasn't David's heart. If you're familiar with the account, you know how David responded. He responded in verse 24 to Ornan. He says, No, 
but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which cost me nothing. David was not willing to offer to the Lord something that cost him nothing. David placed a high value upon his worship of the Lord. The same is seen in this woman. She was willing to offer to the Lord something that was very costly. And and as I consider church settings today, and and not to say just this church, but just church in general, I, I wonder if we have done somewhat of a disservice for some. I think in many ways the church has become like or not. We provide everything for you at no cost. Just come and worship the Lord. We'll provide a place for you. And we'll provide the music. And we'll provide child care for you. You don't have to give anything. Just come and do your thing. And, and, and don't get me wrong. You know, Those are things that I think we should be doing. But we need to be careful that, that our worship doesn't become something of convenience that costs us nothing where we just take advantage of Ornan's freebies without it ever costing us anything, without ever contributing. Our worship should mean more to us. And it should have more value to it than to just come week in and week out offering nothing. We're not told here in Matthew's portion, but in Mark's gospel, we're told that before the woman could anoint Jesus with this costly oil, that she first had to break the flask. Okay, it wasn't like a jar where you kind of open it up and pour it out, put the cap back on. It was a sealed container. In order to pour it out, you would break that seal and then you, you could use it all. Okay, it's a one shot, you'd use it all. And, and so from this, we learn here uh, from this woman's example that the heartfelt worship often comes through breaking. John Corson writes in his commentary, When do you really become a worshiper? When you're broken. When finally you're at your wit's end, you humble yourself before the Lord and worship Him. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time that you were broken before the Lord in worship? I fear that more often than not, when we come to church to worship the Lord, that that we come trying to mask all of our brokenness. We try to come and make it seem like we have it all together. We don't allow ourselves to be broken out of fear of what others may say or what others may think about us. You know, and of all places, this ought to be a place where you can come and, and allow the cracks and allow the wrinkles to be shown. We all know that we're not perfect. Okay? We're all messed up. Okay? And yet we all try to hide it. Allow yourself to be broken before the Lord in worship. As the flask was broken, the woman then poured out the flask upon Jesus' head. And here I see another aspect of worship, very similar to the previous, but slightly different. And namely, that worship involves being poured out. When we come to the Lord in worship, we can empty our hearts to Him. And we can trust that He hears each and every one of our prayers and that He cares about us. We sometimes pray and ask God to fill us, which is a good thing. We want to pray for God's Spirit to fill us. But I think that uh, before God can fill us, we must empty ourselves. Sometimes God may be trying to fill us, but we're already full. And we've got all kinds of garbage and junk that we need to empty ourselves of. I'll ask you another question. How long has it been since you last poured out or you simply just emptied your heart out to the Lord in worship? And you just, you just not to be too graphic, but you just kind of throw up on the Lord. This is, this is what I'm going through, Lord. And just pour out yourself before Him. Worship involves being poured out. In verse 8, we read that when His disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? 
And, and here I see yet another aspect of worship. That worship is often misunderstood by others. Some people just don't get why you even worship the Lord. Why you go to church, or, or why do you even give money? Do you give your money to the church? That's so weird, you know? That's your hard-earned money. Or why do you give so much time to them? Or why do you do that? To them, it's just waste. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of resources. You know, the realization and understanding that we must come to in those situations is that it really doesn't matter what others think when it comes to our worship of God. The only person that we ought to be concerned about in regards to how we worship the Lord is the Lord Himself. What He thinks of our worship should be what concerns us most, not what others think. At the end of verse 10, as Jesus responded to the disciples, He declared that this woman had done a good work for me. And here I see that worship is good and that it brings joy to the Lord. Jesus said that this woman's act was a good thing for him. And I imagine it brought to him great joy, this sacrifice this woman brought before to him. And I believe the same is true when you and I come to the Lord in worship. Excuse me, that it is a way of bringing a smile upon the face of the Lord as we, His children, come and worship Him and just surrender ourselves to Him. Seventh one here, verse 12. Maybe looking into it a little bit. Verse 12 seems to indicate that this woman may have understood that Christ was going to die and be buried. Jesus said, She did it for my burial. And if so, I find it interesting that this woman understood the Lord and His ways more clearly than many of those around Him. And this leads me to believe that those that worship the Lord are often more in tune with Him and His ways. The type of oil that this woman possessed was the kind of oil that would often be used upon dead bodies to embalm them. Okay, so as to try and mask the smell of a body that would, not to be too gross, but decay. And, and so there would be smell. And so they have a very strong oil that they would wrap them in with all these cloths that would be soaked in these uh, perfumes. And that was the kind of oil that this woman have, had. Okay? Uh, yet she used it on Jesus before his death. And perhaps this unnamed woman had previously heard Jesus speak about his death and his resurrection, how he would rise again. It was something that he told his disciples uh, many times. Perhaps she knew his body would not decay. And so she took this opportunity to anoint him now before his death. We can't say for sure what she was thinking. And we don't know for sure uh, if she really understood. But this we do know. Jesus himself credited it to her as being done for his burial. And so Jesus said she did it for his burial, and so I'm going to go with him and his words. She did it for his burial. She knew that he was going to be buried and, and was going to die, and that's why she did it. That's what Jesus said. Okay. How did she know? Well, one commentator suggested this. He says, Revelation and adoration are intricately linked together. When you are at the feet of Jesus in worship, you see things others don't. It's amazing what you'll see when, like this woman, you take time to worship in His presence. I like that. Revelation and adoration linked together. When we come in adoration and worship, there's a connection. There's a link to revelation that we see things and understand things more clearly. And it would seem that this woman had an understanding of what was before Jesus, His death. Lastly, I see here that our worship will not be forgotten. Jesus said in verse 13, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. God will use this woman's act of worship as a testimony to the whole world. 
And you never know how your worship of the Lord will impact another life. Here we are nearly 2,000 years later. We're still talking about this woman and her act of worship unto the Lord. I recall a time in my life when I used to work at a restaurant. I used to witness to people at work and I used to invite them to church. And there was this one girl that was a little bit more on the wild side. Uh, She was kind of into the goth scene and so she kind of wore a lot of black eyeliner and just, she kind of creeped me out a little bit. But I still invited her to church. And... And you know what? The crazy thing is, uh, I ended up moving to Japan uh, the very first time I moved here. I lived here for about nine months. And I went back to the States for a year. And during that year, I actually ran into that girl again. And, and she, uh, when I saw her, uh, she was so excited to see me. And I thought I was a little bit scared again. Uh, and she came up to me and went on to tell me how she got saved. And how she was walking with the Lord and how she remembered how I used to witness to her and others at work. And I used to think that was like useless and had no impact. But you never know. Your worship will not be forgotten. You never know the impact you will have upon a life. It may not be until you are in heaven and someone comes to you and says, Yeah, remember me? You shared the gospel with me. Or remember me? You used to you know, witness to me all the time. And man, I just remember you used to worship the Lord all the time. You never know. You never know. You never know the impact your life will have as you worship the Lord. Know this though. It will not be forgotten. The Lord remembers our acts of worship and He uses them Him uses them for His glory. Let's finish off the rest of our portion here, verses 14 through 16. He says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. And so from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. We read here of Judas Iscariot and his involvement in the plot to betray Jesus. So sad. So very sad. Although I believe... That John's gospel is describing an earlier event that took place four days ago. I still would like to point out something from that account in regards to our account here this morning. In John's account, we read that it was actually Judas Iscariot who first questioned the use of this costly oil in worship. As Mary anointed Jesus with this expensive oil, Judas piped up saying, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John, John actually gives us a little behind-the-scenes information regarding Judas's criticism of Mary's worship. John writes in the very next verse, he says, This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Judas didn't really care about the poor. He wanted the oil to be given to them so that they could sell it, and then the money earned from the sale would then be entrusted to him, and he'd be able to steal some of it for himself. If this account in Matthew is a separate one, which I I, I don't think... I, I do think so. If this account in Matthew is separate... But I don't think it's too far-fetched to assume that Judas was probably the ringleader of the indignation that was felt among the disciples that we read of in verses 8 and 9. I could easily see him yet again balking at another person's act of worship and calling it waste. And as we took time to consider different aspects of worship from the example that the woman left for us, similarly, I'd like to go through and point out some effects of those that would categorize worship as waste. Okay? Uh, the accusation from Judas and the disciples was that this act of worship was a waste. And, and let's see where that type of mentality leads to from what we see in our text here this morning. And we're going to kind of go quickly because we're running out of time here. Okay? First off, I see here in verse 8 that those that le- think of worship as waste they often become embittered towards those that do worship the Lord. In verse 8, it says that the disciples were indignant. 
And the idea behind that word is that it, it pained them to see what was happening. It pained them to watch what was uh, this woman worshiping and pouring out that oil. And they were, it grieved them deeply. Okay? It upset them greatly to see this woman worship the Lord. Have you ever come across someone like that before? Okay. Someone that actually gets mad or uh, upset at you just because you, you worship the Lord? <laughs> they can't believe that you're wasting your life worshiping the Lord. And, and here, it, it is my conviction. It is my conviction that those that are most often pained by our worship are so because of the great struggle that's going on inside their own life. You see, I believe they see something in us that they wish they could have, but they aren't willing to let go of other things in their life that they know the Lord would have them to get rid of. They want what we have, but they can't bring themselves to let go of that which is keeping them from the Lord. Maybe it's pride. Maybe uh, a certain lifestyle, a certain sin but they just cannot give that up. And they see what we have, and they want that, but they know they have to sacrifice this, and it is a war within them, and it gets them upset. And we see this happening. This, lady, this lady's worshiping the Lord, and, and Judas, and we don't know how many other the disciples, they get angry at what's happening. And I picture Judas. He's got his hand on that money box. And he sees that worship and he wants to be able to worship like that, but he can't get his hand off the money box. And it's tearing him up. And he becomes indignant and bittered towards those that do worship the Lord. Secondly, I see here uh, an opportunity for hypocrisy to creep in with those that say worship is a waste. In verse 9, the accusation of waste is followed up by a suggested donation to the poor. And I have no doubt in my mind who gave that suggestion. Okay? I believe it was that same person who objected previously, and I believe it was for the same reasoning too. Judas didn't care about the poor. He just wanted to be able to skimp off the top and, and from whatever money was brought in from it. Such hypocrisy. To pretend you care about the poor when all you really care about is making yourself rich. Hypocrisy. The third thing, keeping with the same thoughts of Judas being this main culprit, I see another aspect of those that think worship is a waste. Judas didn't bother with worshiping the Lord, and I believe it created a deficiency in his life. Judas was unsatisfied with what life had given him. He did not find fulfillment in worship of the Lord, and so he sought it through material gain. Judas, no doubt, was trying to fill a void in his life by stealing money for his own private gain. You know, we are all made to worship. And if we will not worship the Lord, we will find something else to try and fill that void. In verse 11, Jesus said, You have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. Those that saw this act of worship as waste, they missed out on an opportunity to worship the Lord. There was a limited opportunity to worship Jesus as He walked upon the earth to come before Him, to anoint Him uh, in the flesh. Um, that woman seized the opportunity. The others, they let it slip away. And likewise today, we have a limited opportunity to worship the Lord. Tomorrow is promised to no man. We need to do our best to take off advantage of the opportunities God gives us to worship Him. Okay. Alright. Continuing on. Verse 14, we see how Judas' Judas's negative attitude toward worship became an opportunity for the enemy. In verses 3 through 5, uh, we read, if you guys remember, about how the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they had been plotting and planning and trying to figure out a way to, to, to seize Jesus without causing a big scene and where they were unable to come up with a plan. Okay. Then Judas comes, who, who thought that worship was a waste, and his actions, they led to the exact opportunity that our Lord's enemies were looking for. When we have an attitude about worship that 
that sees it as wasteful or useless, we do the same thing Judas, Judas did. We give an opportunity for the enemy to work his way into our life. I don't want you guys to do that. I know I don't want to do that. You don't want to give opportunity for the, for the enemy to work his way in. And that's what Judas did. We need to be careful not to give the enemy any opportunities that he longs for. He wants those opportunities. From verse 15, okay, we see that Judas's attitude towards the Lord, it led him to be willing to exchange the eternal for the temporal. Judas was willing to give up the greatest treasure that the world has ever received in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. He gave up God's gift to man for money that he already knew didn't satisfy. How many of us are are tempted to do the same? How how many of us are willing to sacrifice a a life of worship for, for temporary pleasures or gains? Here on earth. Well, I really can't. I don't want to, you're not going to work on, on my career, and I got to work on this, and I'm not going to go to church on Sunday because I got this going on. Or, you know what? You know, I've even heard it played out, and I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody here, but, you know, oh, you know, I'm not going to come to church and worship the Lord. I'm going to go out just by myself and seek the Lord. But really, you don't go seek the Lord. You just feed your flesh. Okay? We, we, we exchange opportunities to to make eternal investments for temporary gains. That's what Judas did here. He says, I'll exchange Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Seventh one I see here that Judas' heart led him to a place where he was willing to betray the Lord. Verse 16 says, So from that time he sought opportunity to to betray him. And his heart led him to compromise. When we don't take time to worship the Lord, when we don't think it's that important, I guarantee compromise is just around the corner. Settling for less than what God would have for you and eventually leading you, that compromise leading you to the point that you're willing to let go of the Lord and all that he has for you. Lastly, I want to point out just an irony, a bit of irony. I believe irony is the right word. In Judas's declaration of waste, Judas was the one that wasted. Judas wasted the last three years of his life. He looked at the woman who worshipped and called it waste, and yet he had surrendered his life to following Jesus for some three years and just threw it all away. That is waste. That is a wasted life. Don't let your life be wasted. Make your life count. Be a worshiper of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for, uh, Lord, we thank you that you are a God that is worthy of our worship. Father, we thank you that, Lord, it's not based upon uh, talents or abilities or giftings. We can just come and make a joyful noise to you, Lord. We can come and offer up our lives and, and, and the one talent that we have, the many talents that we have, Lord, all of them can be used to worship you. Father, I pray that we would be worshipers. Lord, that we wouldn't look at those who, who, who lift up their hands and sing unto you or those who, who give time or give their resources or, or their, lift their voices to you. Lord, we wouldn't look at it and say, oh, what a waste. Lord, we would know and understand the value of our worship and that we would offer it to you every chance we have. Lord, bless us as we go from here. Lead and guide us. Lord, as we sing this last song, I pray that it be from our hearts. Lord, that we would empty ourselves before you and just worship you in adoration. Lord, you're truly worthy of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
ahead and sing How He Loves Again. Um, as we take this time, let's just make this a time of worship. So if you need to sit there and pray, um, just for these next couple of moments, I want you to just completely forget uh, the people to your right and left, the people in front of you. Uh, this is really a time just between you and God. Um, and let's, let's make this worship.
make our hearts bow before you, God. And as we leave church today, God, as we go out into the world, we just have this opportunity to show who you are and who you mean to us, God. And I just pray that that by our keeping our eyes on you and our hearts focused on you, God, that that, that would be an aroma to those around us, God. And I pray that that would never be the focus and that you would always be the focus of our lives, of our hearts, of all our energies, God. May it all be about you. So I pray that as we lead today, that, that you would go before us and that we would keep you the center of our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're so glad you could join us this morning. Um, there is coffee in the fellowship room, so don't feel like you have to leave right away. You can stick around um, say hi to some folks. And we hope to see you back here next week. You're dismissed.